0: Hello, everyone. This is John Montoya.
1: And this is John Perrings.
0: We are Infinite Banking Authorized Practitioners and hosts of the fifth edition.
1: Episode number 60, long versus short pay policies. And in this episode, we're going to dig into the number of years uh, premium payments are made on a life insurance policy. Uh, We'll talk about why why there are even different... um, Premium durations in a life insurance policy, why that even exists. And since everything with life insurance is about trade offs, you know, we'll talk a a little bit about, you know, some general rules of thumb regarding long versus short pays and the importance of mindset um, around the trade offs between policies that are paid for longer versus short durations. So let's kick this off, John.
0: Yeah, let's do it. Well, let's first understand. What is the difference between a short pay policy versus a long pay policy? What we're referencing here is how long you're going to be contributing premium into a policy. How long are you going to pay premium into a whole life policy? Now, there are policies that can be designed where you can fund it every year for the rest of your life, and that would simply be what we refer to as a long pay policy. And then you have the other end of the spectrum, which is a policy where you're funding premium for let's say five, seven, 10 years would still be a short pay policy. So yeah. people get into this internal debate with themselves, really, you know, one is better than the other. And we want to discuss this because in truth, you know, th- there's, there's a couple things you got to be looking at in order to make a decision that's best for you. And it's not black and white. So this is an important episode. If you're, you know, teetering between what you think is, you know, the, the best policy and, you know, there's, there's a lot of, information out there that you might see on youtube and whatnot that suggests you know they are suggesting that one is better than the other but it all comes back to what is right for your situation and uh john i know you have um some data that you've put together regarding you know how um, long pays will work uh compared to a short pay policy that i think you want to mm-hmm. get into as well so uh this is a great episode to really dig into and learn more about IBC. So let's get
1: it started. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, just for, you know, to help the listeners understand a little bit better, we can kind of define terms a little bit more. And so some terms out there are, you know, that we're going to use, you'll hear us say things like short pay. And so John kind of mentioned some timeframes there, you know, a short pay, you used to be able to do single pay premiums and you still can. Um, But the in most cases the shortest duration is around five years, so we would call that like a five pay, or generically refer to it as a short pay. And then, you know, I'd say the shortest short pay is probably around ten years, right? And by the way, you know all the all this stuff we're talking about uh, regarding payment duration a lot of it is a result of the IRS rules around how life insurance is treated and there's a uh, you know there's the seven what's called the seven pay test that determines the ratio of cash value that you can have to death benefit over a period of time 7 years um before the policy becomes taxable and if you exceed that cash value number uh the policy will be taxed similar to how like an IRA is taxed um so that's kind of why we're even dealing with all of these uh you know payment duration uh questions you know you used to be able to just do a single pay premium no problem uh but now we now we're working around you know some of the different uh rules but you know I think another uh important thing to point out as we get into this um because short pay policy design has become um I, I would say a lot more popular um over the you know probably last 10 years. Um, I don't know. It may be more popular even before then, but, uh, it's definitely popular now. Um, and I think it's super important to point out like a typical whole life, like a straight whole life insurance policy, um, for context, uh, is designed to have premiums paid all the way to age 100. Okay. So like if you're 30 years old, um, you could pay premiums for 70 years. Right. And, um, so that's the starting point. And, you know, so when people see these short pay policies, they're, they're kind of assuming that's like the best way to do it, but it's actually a, um, you know, a deviation from just the standard policy, right. Standard policy design. And again, I think it's super important to point that out because, um, I think by default, there are a lot of agents and advisors out there um, who default to short pay policies, in my opinion, because they're easier to sell.
0: 100%. I mean, something Nelson would say a lot is that you, you have to think long term. And here you have these essentially you know, what we're referring to as short pay policies, advisors designing policies to be funded for 10 years. Uh, Let's say that's the the average on these short pay policies. Um, Well, 10 years, you know, it goes by in a, in a blink. Um, You know, it it just, it does. And then you're stuck in this situation where if you want to continue to put in premium and I would argue, why wouldn't you, um, if you have the resources, well, you're stuck because that policy that you took out 10 years ago. No longer has the room to continue to put more premium without destroying the tax um, setup of the of the policy. It becomes a modified endowment contract, or what we refer to as a MEC, and that's because these policies are are being sold in a way that satisfies a person's initial desire for cash value accumulation, um, but only does so. Um, in the near term without ever thinking about the long-term consequences of, you know, the, w- what the ramifications and trade-offs are going to be. Um And people definitely run into this um because you get there, year 11, what happens? You want a mm-hmm. premium in and oops, you can't.
1: That's right. And, you know, so maybe we could just get into, you know, short pays and, you know, why, why do people write uh short pay policies, you know, and why are they easier to sell? So, you know, we, we like to come from the standpoint that everything's a trade off. And so, you know, there could be valid reasons. And I think there are valid reasons for short pays in general. My feeling is the longer you can pay, the better, Um but and we'll get into some reasons why you might want to do a short pay, but let's just talk about why it's easier to sell. So from a from a design standpoint, what's happening is uh you're reducing the base premium and and cranking up the PUA, which is in you know, all if all things were equal, of course that's what we would want and we'd want as much cash value in that first year as possible. But again, we're always designing to um stay within the MEC limits, the IRS modified endowment contract limits. And we also want to um you know create a policy that has a lot of options. But what we're doing with these short pays is we're driving down the base premium significantly and cranking up the PUA to the point where we're really maxing that PUA out um for five years straight. And then we have to pay it up um because if we don't, the policy will most likely become a mech. And so um Why I think this is easier to sell, I think there are a few reasons. And I think the biggest one is that the typical mindset around life insurance views premium as a cost, right? And when viewed as a cost, um, it's easier to sell life insurance when, you know, a policy owner can kind of see that there's an end to all this. You know, they're looking at, they're, they're seeing these premium dollars go out every year. And if they're looking at that as a cost, then they want they would probably like that to stop you know as soon as they could um and so I think short pays are popular because when a when a client sees the kind of tangible end you know in five years to their premiums. It's easy for them to get their, easier to get their head around it and feel comfortable with it than it is to look at a, you know, policy illustration that has them paying, you know, premiums for 70 years in the, you know, in that case that I gave for the, for the 30 year old. And so I think that's one of the, one of the biggest reasons in that, you know, um, I think people that rely and only sell these short pay policies, they really just don't, um, I think it's a, a kind of a basic type of understanding of what we can do with life insurance um when we know how to, you know, properly use it.
0: Yeah, and I, I would argue that the advisors selling them um really aren't hitting home the true value of that death benefit because they're treating it, the death benefit, as an expense as well and completely missing the bigger picture. The death benefit is what makes everything possible in a whole life policy. And Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, having the least amount possible, um, you know, you, you in the long run, you're, you're going to end up with fewer options with a, you know, with the least possible death benefit. Um, and it just, I'll, I'll let you get into it, John, cause you've, you've run the numbers and, and, um, uh, have prepared it for this episode, but, um, we always talk about having more options, right? That's what whole life provides. And if you're going to limit yourself, you know, you're, you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot without even knowing it by, you know, seeing or not seeing the bigger picture. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, and, you know, I think it also should be mentioned that, you know, When people start researching infinite banking, you know, we do talk about minimizing the death benefit because a person's need for capital um, is oftentimes greater than their need for death benefit. But I think um, there's a general misunderstanding of um, what is meant by that, that we're we're not saying the death benefit isn't worth anything, right? The protecting your human life value, which is your greatest asset, is absolutely important. And so there are ways to get that human life value while still creating a a very powerful uh, infinite banking type of policy. And so let me just, um, let me touch on two other reasons why I think short pays are are easier to sell and and have become more popular. You know, the, the short pay policies, they also typically have a significantly higher early cash value, like, you know, especially year one, the cash value number um, as a ratio to premium is going to be higher than a longer pay policy. And, you know, so people look there's for whatever reason, people really focus on that first year of premium. Meanwhile, it's like, you know, one of the thing also in the book is like, you've got to capitalize, right? And so we we can't we can't start a business and expect to be, you know, 100% liquid, have our investment back, you know, in year 1 if we're starting a new business, which is what we're doing. We're getting in the business of banking, quote unquote. So, um but anyway, you know, those that early cash value does look better. Um and lastly, uh there is a higher degree of flexibility in a in a short pay policy from the premium outlay perspective because of the way it's designed. And by the way, everything we're saying right now, there's, there are subtleties depending on what insurance company you're working with. But um, in general, the premium part of a, pre, um, excuse me, the PUA Portion of a premium payment has a lot more flexibility in how much of that needs to be paid in any given year, and so you have the ability to go down and reduce your overall premium if you need to. Like if you just run into a hard month or a hard year, you can reduce that premium amount, and it's pretty significant when you know most of your premium is PUA, and so um, you you can you know increase some flexibility to go down but we'll get into the trade-off. You're you're actually limiting your ability to go up if you need to. Um, And so this, the PUA portion is one of the ways we can build in some flexibility without making any changes to the policy. Um, We have some flexibility in how much uh, premium we need to pay in any given month or year, but um, there there are trade-offs to it.
0: Yeah. And the number one trade-off is going to be the the premium cost in order to fund, A policy for a longer duration uh, you need to have more death benefit in the policy so as a result and what i should back up and say you need to have more permanent death benefit in the policy in order to fund a policy for a longer duration so what does that mean it means that you're going to have a higher base or a higher minimum as part of your total premium But that's also going to give you the flexibility to continue funding a policy for a much longer period of time. And the longer you're able to fund a policy, the more cash value, more capital you're going to accumulate in your life.
1: That's exactly it. and. You know, so that gets into, you know, some of our longer, if we were to talk a little bit about, you know, what's the difference between a short pay and a longer duration pay? Well, uh, the longer you pay premium, you know, you're typically going to have a higher initial death benefit. That's number one, right? Um, And something to think about when you pay for a longer period of time, what's interesting is um, that you're paying level premium payments, right? Right. Uh, meanwhile, you're getting older every single year, and the co- if you were to start a new policy um, in every single year, just by way of example—your premium dollar, the, the the price of the premium would start going up every single year. However, for that same amount of death benefit, you're sta- you're paying the same premium every single year um, to get that death benefit, and so it's a it's an interesting way to start looking at, you know, the earlier you start, the more efficient it can become. Um, another, you know, trade-off of longer pay policies is it's going to be, it's going to have a little less flexibility. So going back to what we were saying before with the, the PUA rider, you know, um, you have a little less flexibility to reduce premiums if you need to, because more of the premiums, premium is buying base whole life and, and probably some you know term insurance via a term insurance rider. Um, and so more of that premium is going to be required to be paid. And so you do lose a little bit of that kind of downside flexibility to reduce your premium payment. But again, um, thinking of long term payments, um the that steady that steady payment is also stay it also stays steady during in, when inflation is happening. So it's almost, it's kind of like the opposite of, uh, well, it's actually similar to a mortgage where every time you make a mortgage payment that stays level for 30 years. Um, you know, and so meanwhile it's buying you the cent, you know, it's buying you that house that is increasing in value presumably. Um, whereas, uh, a life insurance policy is similar. Where every time you make a premium payment it's that same level premium payment, even though all the other you know even though the dollars are being devalued out there so in a in a- in inflation adjusted terms, your premium is actually going down every single year to buy you that to buy you that death benefit so some interesting things to think about from a a long a long term perspective are paying longer premiums so why don't we get into some into some trade offs here um before we do that, I want to make one more definition, which is the idea of of a policy becoming paid up. So we'll probably, you know, if we haven't already, we'll probably use that term. And, and really what that means is when a policy becomes paid up, it's a fully paid policy. Okay. No more premiums are due on it, but you still have your cash value growing. You're still getting dividends that you can use any way you want. And you can still use policy loans, so it's a fully functioning, enforced life insurance policy. But you can just no longer pay any more premiums on it. So these short pay policies are would be considered, you know, paid up uh, at the end of the five years or ten years, whatever the number is. And again, the tra- you know traditional or or I guess baseline whole life insurance policy uh, goes out to age one hundred, and then is considered paid up at age one hundred. So those are sort of the the goalposts, right? Um, so let's talk a little bit about, uh, some of the trade-offs. Um, I just want to go back to this idea of cost, right? And so regarding premium cost, while it's true for term insurance, uh, in most cases anyway, so here's a stat, like basically 1% of term insurance uh, policies actually pay out. And so 99% of the time, Um, term insurance premiums are a true cost. And so that's a legitimate way to evaluate uh, life insurance premiums, uh, term life insurance premiums, I should say. However, whole life, we really have to look at the premiums in a totally different way because whole life insurance is an asset. Every time you make a premium payment, you're building that asset. It becomes more valuable. And so, you know, most people are, so when we look at like, the length of time we're paying premiums, most people are totally fine paying a mortgage for 15, 30 years, right? Um, but they sometimes have a problem imagining themselves paying a life insurance premium for 15, 30, 40, 60, 50 years, you know, whatever the number is. Meanwhile, what's happening is really very similar. You're, every time you make a mortgage payment, you build equity in your asset, of, which is a house. Every time you make a premium payment to a whole life insurance policy, you also build equity in that life insurance policy. And that's uh, the, val- the asset there is the death benefit and the, the equity in there is the cash value. So it's a very similar thing. And so I'm, I'm kind of just bringing that up to hopefully help people look at um, premiums in a different way and why they might want to pay a little bit longer.
0: I think it's important there to just really crystallize for people in both instances, you have to view your property as an asset, the same as a whole life policy is an asset, but most people, you know, they, they have this mindset. Well, the life insurance policy is, is, is a, an expense, right? But what, what you just explained with a term policy being the actual expense because you pay into it and 99% of the time your family ends up with nothing that makes a, in truth, a liability, uh, compared to a whole life policy, something that's permanent, something that's guaranteed to pay out a death benefit. It's guaranteed to accumulate cash value. That is truly an asset. And in fact, in the mortgage industry, I know most mortgage brokers never ask this, but on the application, when you're applying for a loan from a traditional bank, they'll ask you about your 401k assets, you know, how much money you have in the bank. And I'll say 99% of mortgage brokers, they might ask you how much life insurance you have. Um, yep. well, I take it back. Only 1% will probably ask you. 99% won't ask right. you how much life insurance you have because they don't realize it's an asset. And that goes the same with, you know, 99% of the public, they don't realize life insurance is an asset. And when you don't value things the proper way, it's hiding in plain sight. And that's why we have this incredible uh, financial product, which is whole life hiding in plain sight, because it's not valued properly.
1: Exactly. I mean, Look at the balance sheet on any big bank. They're holding billions and billions of dollars of whole life insurance as part of their tier one capital, the most valuable capital that they have on hand. And so, you know, the the cool thing is like we can actually we we can have that. We can have the same, you know, tier one capital that the banks have uh, if we just understood how to, as you said, value it uh, in a correct manner. So, you know, another, another trade off is, um, you know, short pay policies, which typically give you that higher early cash value often results in a lower death benefit, which we did touch on before. Um, but if we, you know, some, I, I think a lot of advisors out there get so focused on the cash value, they really forget that the death benefit is super important as well, right? Like there is no question. That if something happens to you and in your income, um, your family will have to make some changes. And if they don't, that means they're going to consume other assets that were essentially earmarked for the future. And so your family will either end up with less now, or they'll end up with less in the future. And I think if people understood that um, that side of it, they they might be a little more um, willing to under a little more willing to appreciate the death benefit side of it. And, you know, I talk to people all the time, they don't care about the death benefit and that's fine. You know, if you don't have anybody that, you know, you'd like to indemnify against the loss, it's fine. There are still, um, plenty of reasons to consider paying for a longer period of time, which I'll, I'll touch on, uh, after we get through the, the trade-off section. All right. So, um, next on trade-offs is we're I want to dig into why it matters that, um, the, the more PUA you have in your premium payment, how it gives you, it does give you more flexibility to reduce your premium payment if you need to. But I want to get into the trade-off of actually doing that. So um you have the flexibility, um, but we have to understand that if you use the flexibility, it will have... A significant effect on the performance of your policy. Okay, so when when we design these short pays and most of the premium is PUA, that it's that PUA component that builds all that early cash value. So if anything happens and you actually do decide to not pay the PUA component of your premium, um, your the cash value in those early years is going to be significantly affected. Um, meaning it will be, you know, you'll almost, you'll have no new cash value almost. If you, if you did it the first year, you probably end up with zero cash value. If you did it the second year might end up with zero cash value again. So it's like, what people have to understand is that, um, they not pay, having that flexibility and using, having the flexibility is good, but using it, um, creates some, pretty big problems that your policy is not going to be anywhere near what you thought it was going to be. And so we've talked about, um, in a, in another episode, which we'll post in the show notes, I just thought of it. So I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but how how much premium should you pay? And, you know, we talk about, um, rather than dumping is, you know, paying a big premium in the, you know, because you know, you can go smaller, Your total premium should be something that you feel comfortable committing to for a long period of time, because other if you don't do it that way, the policy is going to be drastically different than what you originally planned on. And another thing about this is, there are some companies out there that have what are called blended term PUA riders, and depending on how those are set up, if you if you are not paying the PUA portion of that blended term PUA rider what what could end up happening is the, the cost of the term insurance could outweigh um, what's happening in the policy, and you could actually lose cash value or worse, have a policy lapse, right? You could lose cash value, you could uh, lose death benefit, or the policy could lapse. And so sometimes the flexibility really depends on the carrier you're working with, the insurance company you're working with, because these, um, these blended PUA riders could cause a big problem if you do decide to um take advantage of that of that flexibility. So again, coming up with a policy that has a, a longer payment period with a premium that you know you can afford um is uh in my opinion, rule of thumb wise, a, a much better uh decision. Lastly, um the we talked about the ability to go down and ha- and pay much less premium if you need to, but I touched on it a little bit earlier on, um, when you have a policy set up that way, you're basically maxing the PUA component out and you can't put any more into the policy if you wanted to. So when we focus on infinite banking, you know, one of the ideas that we want to do is we want to go out and buy income generating assets, right? Well, if you are gen- if you just bought something that generates an income and also pays your policy loan back, um, where's that income going to go? And if you don't have any room in the policy, It'll just go right back into a bank, right? Which was what we—this what we, is why we did the whole thing in the first place, because we want a better place to put cash. And so, what happens is, um, if you take advantage of the flexibility, or you've got a policy that's maxed out, what ends up happening is you en- actually end up with a way smaller policy than you would have if you just had built in the flexibility and the options to fund it. More rather than focus on that first year to maybe five years of cash value, Um, and so now, 20 years down the road, you've got a much smaller policy. You have much less cash value because you weren't able to pay a premium. Most important thing is pay a premium. That's that's what's going to build this thing for you, right? So, uh, John Montoya, I don't know if you have anything to add to that before I get into the you know. I've done a lot of research on this, and and I wanted to just share the results of, um, you know, if you don't care about the death benefit, you don't care about the flexibility, you might care about what the results are on the growth and the cash value, and so I want to talk a little bit about that. But I don't know if you have anything else, John.
0: No, I want you to keep going because it's that I think people are inherently wanting to, you know, they they come into IBC with the idea of having this cash asset that can perform Mm -hmm. better than cash sitting in a bank, you know, they're starting to see the bigger picture and, you know, they want more economic bang for their buck. So yeah, go into the performance.
1: Yeah. So, you know, um, I've, I've, it's a common thing where, You know, again, when you look at, when you compare the cash value of a short pay versus the cash value of a long pay and you, and you actually, if you do an internal rate of return calculation, the short pay does perform better from an IRR standpoint. And so a lot of people look at that and that's the, that's where they stop analyzing everything. However, it's actually not that much better. So what I did is I, I analyzed a 30 year period and what I did was, um i took a single 30 pay and just designed the policy for 30 years to pay for 30 years and then i did 6 5 pays and compared the outcome of of both of those because what what often happens is people will you know agents will uh suggest doing a short pay like a 5 pay and then and and obviously after 5 years the policy's paid up and you can't pay any more premium on that policy. So people are like, well, where do I put my money now? And the the argument would be, well, that's when you start your next policy. And that could be true, but it may not be true because we don't know if you can even qualify for life insurance in five years. We don't know what your health is going to be, right? And, you know, John Montoya and I both have had people that, you know, waited to get life insurance and they're no longer insurable, right? And so that can happen just as easily, if you have one life insurance policy or zero life insurance policies. So, first thing we don't know if you can get another policy in five years. Um, but let's pretend you could. Let's pretend you're definitely insurable at the same uh, the same um, health rating. Your health never gets worse; it's always the same. The one thing we can't control for sure is is your age. So you're going to be five years older, and so those the cost of insurance is going to be higher then. Um. And guess what? You're also starting a new policy in five years. And so you have all of those new upfront costs in the new policy to overcome again. You have your, your, you, you've just created a new policy that has that capitalization period now. And so I think a lot of people miss that because they just see the IRR on their five pay compared to a 30 pay. And they say, well, this is better, but it's not better. If you, if you add everything up, it's not an apples to apples comparison. If you took six, five pays over 30 years and compared that to a single 30 pay. The truth is if you combine all of the numbers, if you look at it from a, a totality standpoint of each scenario, uh, the IRR on the 30 pay is actually slightly better. Um, and you have a, you have a bigger policy You have more cash value because think of it this way. Imagine in year six, you just, you just made your last payment on a five pay, And you're going to go start your next five pay. Well, that first payment that you make, you're losing money. You make a premium payment and your cash value does not equal the premium that you just paid. On the other hand, with a 30 pay in the sixth year, (laughs) more than likely, this is all depending on health, of course, but when you make that, that payment, that sixth year payment in your 30 year, let's say you made a $20,000 premium payment. Well, you, you might have like $25,000 of new cash value. Because that policy was has been capitalized and has been able to mature to the point where it's becoming more and more efficient, whereas you're chopping all those five pays off at the knees and starting all over with that capitalization period and so it's very easy to show the numbers um, where having that long that long range mindset is really going to make a difference in terms of like you know, what the actual outcome is going to be. And by the way, just going back to the insurance, the insurability uh, perspective um, with that 30 pay, you had the ability to pay premiums for the entire 30 years, right? You didn't have to go back through underwriting. You didn't have to do any of that stuff and qualify for another life insurance policy. It was all right there. And you had the ability to go, to go down if you needed to. And you had the ability to pay more in premium if you experience a windfall, and if that happens, you're going to just—it's the policy is going to blow the six-five pays out of the water. No questions. No questions about it.
0: Awesome. Sounds um, like sounds like yeah. the old uh, tortoise versus the hare.
1: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's a good. That is good.
0: Yeah, and the irony is that you know people unwittingly you know choose these five or seven, ten pay options only to get to that endpoint. And realize oh, they want more of it. They didn't realize how much of a good thing this was initially, but they get to the end of that roadmap on that short pay policy and they're like, Yeah, I want another one. And the irony is that, well, you know, you you sacrificed uh what you could have accomplished for, you know, a lower overall premium. Because you didn't see the bigger picture. And that's what we're trying to really emphasize people uh, that you got to take a look at things like Nelson said, from a long range point of view.
1: Yeah. And his minimum long range, by the way, coincidentally was 70 years. So I, you know, earlier we were talking about paying a premium for 70 years. Well, his minimum, um, you know, uh, outlook was 70 years in the book, right? So we just, um, we just talked about a rule of thumb, um, you know, depending on the scenario um, I think long pays are better um, in most cases because of the, uh, the flexibility, because of the death benefit, and because of the overall performance of the policy compared to trying to do a bunch of short pays. That being said, (laughs) are there any reasons we would want to do a short pay?
0: And I can think of one. Um, So a rule of thumb that I kind of go by is source of premium. And there's a second Mm, one, but just starting with the first rule of thumb source of premium, the best, or I should say easiest example to understand is take an example of a person who let's say, use that same 30-year-old person, they are in the workforce and planning to work, let's say, for 30 years before heading off into retirement. Well, they're going to plan on funding their infinite banking whole life policy or policies using their income as their source of premium. Well, it makes sense to have, at a minimum, and we would argue maybe even longer, but at a minimum 30 years worth of runway, meaning 30 years worth of premium that you could put into a policy versus what you're talking about um, in your examples where, you know, you compare it to six, five pays, right? You want to match your source of premium to the duration of the policy. Uh, So that is one example. Uh, the second would be the age of the insured, because let's say you're in your fifties and your source of income, you know, is going to be your job, and you're anticipating working for the let's say the next fifteen years um, or even ten years, you know, depending on your situation. Well, if we're matching the source of premium, we, we also have to take into consideration your age, because uh, if you're going to retire in ten to fifteen years does it necessarily make sense to design a policy for 30 years worth of premium? Uh, there is an argument to be made. Yes. Um, and maybe John, yeah. you might want to get into that, but, uh, there's two examples where, you know, rule of thumbs. It makes sense to, you know, look at these uh, variables to figure out what is best for your situation.
1: Yeah, and I th- I think those two things actually tie in together too because, you know, it, you were talking about the source of premiums. So if you have a, a lump sum, you know, does that make sense to stretch out a lump sum over 30 years? Maybe the premiums wouldn't be that big and you're also kind of, you know, earmarking uh, a large lump sum of money that's kind of not able to do anything for a long period of time other than pay those premiums. So it might not be the best use of a large lump sum. And if you're, let's, let's push that age out to retirement. Let's say they're already are retirement or they're retired or they're five to 10 years into retirement. Well, a lot of those people, they might have a lump sum, you know, sitting in the form of, you know, one of their retirement plans that it might, it may make sense for them to move that over into their life insurance policy, right? So those are, I think those are great examples of, you know, when it could make sense to do uh, a short pay um however i would also say both of those people they could presumably have assets that pay them an income and so they still need a place to put cash so you know it, so i i guess what we're saying is you know it, there could be a place for a short pay you know there's nothing you know written in stone that you can never do a short pay or anything like that but we we really just want to examine the you know the situation and i I do have a hard time, you know, for a young person, I have a hard time thinking of a good reason other than what you said, you know, if if they have a lump sum source of premium and they want to, you know, fund a policy with that, you know, I might even, you know, say that, hey, maybe it makes sense to create a policy that you can pay A premium on for the next, you know, in our 30 year old example, pay a premium for the next 70 years or 30 years or 50, you know, 50 years, whatever the number is, um, as long as possible. And then we could fold in that lump sum into that into that policy. Um, so they can still pay a premium on it. Right. But again, it's all, it's all just relative and it makes it, it matters what the the bigger picture is. Like you've been saying, John Montoya matters what the bigger picture is, um, in terms of like, what's the best way to accomplish that.
0: Yeah. And I think it all comes back to principles and the IBC mindset and, and that's where we're Mm going to finish off. I mean, ultimately, what we're talking about is warehousing your wealth, and if you are blessed to live a very long time, you need to create places where you can redirect that wealth, and that—that's what these IBC policies do. Um, it allows you to create a cash asset that is going to earn 40 times what you would get at a typical bank. Um, It's going to give you uh, an intangible of sovereign uh, financial uh, individuality and that you're not indebting yourself to a traditional bank, right? When you want to finance all the major things in your life, you know, you're, you're, you're not beholden to a traditional bank. You have this, family banking system so to speak that you've set up where you can go to it anytime you want um we we've hit on in previous episodes the the tax benefits um we always touch on you know the accessibility of these funds i mean that that can be really a, a life raft uh, especially in times you know when times get tough um you know, there, there's that saying, you know, we find out who's, uh, who's been swimming naked when the tide goes out. Well, when you've got these IBC policies and you've been redirecting your wealth to these policies over time, you're never going to be swimming naked. So there, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Anything you want to add to that, John?
1: I would just add, if you haven't yet go back and listen to episode 55, you know, IBC and the, and the power to heal. And, you know, you can, listen to John's wife, Kelly's story of having a liquid source of capital at the time she needed it the most. And so, you know, that, that's really, um, that's really one of the things that this is all about. Um, you know, I, I would just, uh, the only things I might add are, you know, the potential creditor protection as well, depending on what state you're in, you know, all the, all the things you were talking about with growth, you know, um, everything grows tax deferred and you can get to it tax-free, right? Um, you mentioned the tax benefits. Those are a couple of them. And then I guess um, we could probably wrap it up by, um, you know, it's a quote from Ed Slot, uh, who's an accountant. I'm not a fan of everything he does. He's kind of an IUL guy a lot of times, which I'm not as big of a fan on IUL, but he makes a great point about using life insurance. You know, if you had a place to um, put money, that had all those qualities we just talked about, you know, earned 40 times what it would earn in a bank, you know, grew tax deferred, uh, gave you the liquidity you needed when, if you need money, the worst possible time, like gave you that liquidity, and then gave you all the tax advantages, right? If you had a place to put money, would you want to only be able to put it there for a little bit of time, or would you want to be able to put it there for as long as possible? And I think that's a great um, just thought exercise around, you know, why, what are we doing here? We're, we're, we're strategically accumulating capital. I can't think of any reason why you want to shortchange yourself. And in terms of how long you could do that. Amen. Awesome. Well, we went a little bit long on this one because I think it was worth, you know, really digging into. Uh, if you have any questions, you know, you can always go to the fifth edition.com and right there, you can schedule an appointment with us, no cost, no obligation. Um, and you can find out, you know, how these principles could work in your life. And if you're one of those people that, you know, just likes to really learn on their own before they talk to anybody, we have a course up there that you can get a 50% discount on it and, um, you can go through that and do all the, all the self education to your heart's desire. So thanks, everybody. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Thanks, John.
0: Take care.